Hi, my name's Charlie Kimball, and you need more front wing. Hello, and welcome to another more front wing podcast. Site co editor Paul Dalby here, pleased to be with you. And another month of May has come and gone. Another Indianapolis 500 is in the books. And now the Verizon IndyCar series has moved on and will be going on to Detroit this weekend. Moving on with the series is my fellow co editor, Steph Wallcraft. And since since she's been in Indianapolis last weekend away from the family and will be away from the family again this weekend in Detroit, we decided to give her the night off. So I'm pleased to be joined again by site contributor and author of the phenomenal Lloyd Ruby book, Hard Luck Lloyd, our good friend John Lingle. John, thanks again for being with us. Absolutely. Glad to be here. All right, John, where do we... I, Trying to figure out how to dissect a 500-mile race of this, is, it, it, it's, it's difficult to even think of where to start. So I guess we start right at the beginning. The opening ceremonies, again, I guess just touch on those as we're going chronologically. Again, the Memorial Day services and the Memorial Day remembrances are always phenomenal in Indianapolis. Outside of that, there was special moving tributes this weekend to Jim Neighbors, who, of course, sung his last rendition of back home again in indiana after what was it 37 appearances is that correct and and uh it was certainly sad to to hear him sing his last but i think everyone was really took in the moment and enjoyed it didn't you oh absolutely uh you know the, he actually uh, i was seated in 53 the uh card stunt which i thought was a nice little touch that the track did there uh, but uh, i think that, i believe 1971 or 1972 he's been there every year singing since then yeah he's missed a couple uh, years but certainly so it's been a, a long tradition trip. so the after jim neighbors we got the command to go the the cars take off and was it glorious to see the 11 rows of three during the parade lap i thought it looked phenomenal a nice uh somewhat forgotten touch of a days gone by it was great to see a couple guys on the front row pole sitter ed carpenter and james hinchcliffe acknowledge the crowd back and wave and it was a small gesture but i think a lot of people noticed and it was just really cool to see that it, it, it seems these days usually they take off in single file so to see them in their formation and to see the drivers waving back really kind of harken back to a to an earlier age when when you used to see that and all 33 drivers would would acknowledge back to the crowd but i thought that was really cool on their part this weekend to see that yeah absolutely and the you know the Small touches sometimes, ones that really stick with folks. And uh, I'm with you. I really enjoyed seeing uh, Hinch and, and Carpenter and them as they as they came by with kind of a, a, a little bit of a, of a touch of acknowledging the fans there coming by the 11 rows of three. That 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 was really nice to see. So the start of the race, I I don't know that anyone expected the race to play out quite as it did there was the 150 laps from the start of pure green flag racing i don't well i mean that's beyond a record at indianapolis it, it's just unfathomable that that these drivers could be out there uh for 375 miles with with no issues no debris no engines failing no crashes i mean that, that's a testament to the skill of these drivers I've heard a lot of people say, well, that shows how easy the car is to drive. But I don't buy that argument 
at all. I think this is this was a quality field, and it's a tribute not only to the skill of these drivers, but also to the reliability of the chassis that Delara has built, of the engines that Honda and Chevrolet has built. And to be able to pull that off is something truly truly unique that I don't we've never obviously never seen I don't think we'll ever see that again uh, so this argument that we need to make the cars more difficult to drive and, and this is proof of that I'm not buying it how about you you know I, I don't really either there's there's a big difference between this 150 laps this wasn't like watching them run 150 laps at Talladega single file up on the high line just trying to stay out of trouble uh, I don't haven't seen the broadcast yet so I don't know how it played out on TV but from the track there uh, there was racing going on that whole time. Uh, there was a lot of position changes, uh, a lot of uh, defending, uh, not not quite to the level that there was at the end, but uh, you know, guys were still making it hard to make a pass. Uh, I was amazed that we that we went that far, and uh, I, I'm echo with you that I think it just kind of showed the skill that these drivers have. You know, after last year where we saw so much passing, we saw a record 68 lead changes, I think a lot of people were expecting this race to play out. But early on, I think within the first five or ten laps, I think you could really see that these drivers and the teams really learned a lot from last year, and they realized that, A, it doesn't pay much to lead early in the race, and, B, the penalty for leading from a fuel mileage standpoint is extreme so it didn't seem like anybody as you mentioned there was a lot of slicing and dicing going on back in the pack you know past maybe the third fourth fifth position but up front you didn't really see those lead changes you saw hinch lead early on and then i i heard the call from his team and said okay hey let's save a little fuel here make these guys go past you sure enough as soon as they said that ed carpenter went to the lead and then he led for for several laps and by the time the first pit stop came in, he, he's two laps earlier on that first pit stop than anyone. So we really saw early on the penalty that the leader paid for being out front. And I think more than anything, that's what contributed to the, to the quote-unquote lack of passing or perceived lack of passing. As you mentioned, the, back in the field, there was a lot of slicing, a lot of dicing, a lot of passing going on that maybe kind of got shuffled down a little bit because they weren't passes for the lead. You agree? Uh, absolutely. Seeing the broadcast, I'm not sure how much of that showed, but uh, you know, from our vantage point on the stretch, two and three wide going down the front stretch, uh, out passes on the outside, you know, up through the middle of the field, uh, up into the top third, there was a lot of jockeying for position. I mean, like you said, just from a fuel standpoint, it seemed like a guy get himself up to – uh, third, fourth, fifth place, and then kind of say, okay, I'm just going to hang out here now, and uh, kind of cool it off for a little bit. There, there seemed to be a, you know, almost a little bit of a, uh, a desire not to take the lead, which obviously, like I said, with, with Carpenter, his fuel mileage showed it, uh, the price that he paid uh, for leading those early laps, having to come in two laps early. Uh, so, again, you know, not knowing what TV showed or didn't show, uh, uh, there was no lack of action throughout the field. Well, you know, that's interesting because I did get a chance to watch the the, uh, the the broadcast of the race the next day on Monday. And, you know, we so often knock on TV on the broadcast, be it NBC or, or the AS, ESPN ABC broadcast, uh, for missing so much action. 
And I, I guess, quite honestly, while I was at the track on Sunday, those first 150 laps, I did kind of feel like, you know, there there was certainly passing going on in the back, but it didn't feel as as exciting as you felt like was going to come. I honestly felt like they they had decided, okay, we're going to get to the last 100 miles, and then we'll start to race. Uh, so there was times it felt sitting there that perhaps it was a little bit processional. I think that TV actually did an incredible job of capturing what was going on because I looked back on the broadcast and thought, wow, I really missed quite a bit here because there's a lot of action that that went on that I didn't see at the track and I didn't necessarily get a sense of at the track. So I want to certainly give some kudos to the the broadcast guys over at ABC and ESPN that I think they did a remarkable job in this race, particularly in those first 150 laps where, let's be honest, 150 laps of green can can oftentimes lead to uh, some processional racing, some strung out activity with not a whole lot to show. I thought they did a remarkable job uh, of really showing action throughout the pack. Uh, so I just want to throw out some kudos to them and, and make sure we pat them on the back instead of always kicking them while they're down a little bit. Absolutely. That's good to hear. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Us at the DVR are probably going to check it out tonight or tomorrow. Well, one guy that unfortunately didn't do much slicing or dicing and, and had another rough event, which seems to unfortunately be the case for this team more times than not these days, was Graham Rahal and the Rahal-Letterman-Lanigan uh, team there, the National Guard-sponsored entry. Really surprising, because I think a lot of people expected with the, the influx of cash this team received from, from the National Guard that they would really step up their game and, and kind of erase the gremlins of the last year or so. Unfortunately, this doesn't seem to be the case, and they can't shake this whatever bug has has gotten into them. Graham again had a had an awful race. I believe he started 21st, 22nd, somewhere in that ballpark. I'm just kind of looking that up now. Uh, Graham actually started uh, ninth. I'm sorry, Graham started 20th, so the 20th. Uh, middle of row seven. I think within a matter of a lap or two, he was already back either last or next to last. And then by the time by the time he got to about lap 30, that engine had kind of completely gone sour. And uh, again, just a very short day for Graham. John, what do you make of the struggles of Graham? Let me rephrase He was actually out at lap 44 when he officially retired. What do you make of the struggles that we continue to see from this team week in and week out, especially on the biggest stage here at Indianapolis? Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's the first thing that jumps out. Uh, I can't remember the year before last, but this makes two just really poor maze in a row uh, for the whole organization. And, of course, uh, I, you know, I'm not sure what to make of it. Uh, if, if people remember, I wrote a piece after the uh, the 24 hours of the sports car in their lap times in in, a, in comparison to teammate try to get I doing a good job who wasn't and Graham was on the uh, BMW team that that is a, a front runner week in week out there not a lack of talent I mean he showed that when he first came in uh, you know winning his first IRL race you know being good in it but I just I, what is missing with that team or with him I don't you know I know a lot of people have uh, made comments about kind of uh, a mental with, um, I don't know if he's lacking an edge or if, if there's a, a problem that we don't know about, but it, it's just crazy to see this long stretch just continue to where he doesn't seem to have the pace week out. 
And if I'm not mistaken, did they not hire an engineer or two away from from was it Dale Coyne's team? Maybe they hired. I and I I should know this, and I'm drawing a blank of who's running the engineering on that team now. But I mean, they've got they've got quality people there at Ray Hall Letterman, and you would expect that that they would start to turn this around. But it just doesn't, for whatever reason, it doesn't seem to be to be coming together for them. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's it's not a shoestring budget. But uh, uh, Bob runs a, a fantastic organization, like I said, as as it shows through with his sports cars and his other ventures. It's just a head scratcher, right? Some of it's on engineering, how much of it's on, you know, X series. You, you wouldn't think that they're difference uh, car wise that would be seen right now. So, you know, in course that they're given yeah let me uh let me back that up just a little bit the uh you know they hired john dick last year from he had been at dale coin previously and he was uh he he engineered the the win for mike conway last year at at detroit when he was with dale coin you know and, and john dick has a ton of experience making cars go fast you can go all the way back to the 80s and 90s he worked with teams like uh you know he was with with kenny bernstein's king motorsports he worked gallus craco he worked team cool green back in the day so i mean this guy has a lot of experience and has made a lot of cars go really fast so it's it's hard to see what's what's going on here but you know there are certainly a lot of people as you alluded to that that i wonder if graham has lost his focus now you know it is is racing the priority in his life that, quite honestly, it needs to be. Yeah, and I think that, you know, where there's smoke, there's sometimes fire. Um, he's not not doing anything on, on Twitter to help dispel that. Um, and I know a lot of it is he does have a lot of sponsors, and so there's a lot of work into that. I know that's a, that's a fine line for you put into that. But uh, you know, there, there's something missing, and uh, I wonder if he could be well served with, uh, you know, what was it two years ago now that Marco Andretti kind of sat down and, and had a long talk with himself about his driving and his whole approach to racing, and uh, this still didn't have a victory to come back for to show for that, but has had uh, much better results since he's done that, and it's time for for Graham to kind of have the same. Yeah, that's a that's a very interesting point, and you you kind of wonder if if the, if that you know personal coming to Jesus is what it's going to take. All right, so be, after after Ray Hall falls out of the race uh, again on lap 44, uh, Buddy Lazier is the next one out of the race at, at somewhere around lap 80, 85. I don't remember the exact number there. And then we go all the way until lap 149 before the 31st place follower. 31st placed finisher follow falls out of the race and that of course was was charlie kimball who brought out the first caution of the day for his accident over in turn two unbelievable again that 33rd 31st position goes 149 laps so after that after the caution there at lap 149 then it all of a sudden felt like the dam broke and all of a sudden, now it's time to go racing. And things got hot in a hurry. Lo and behold, out of the middle of nowhere, Scott Dixon ends up in the wall. How often do you hear of Scott Dixon in the wall? And you just think that's a, a, 
more of a metaphor for the entire day for, for Ganassi, who Ganassi had about as bad a day at Indianapolis this year as I can remember. I, I couldn't tell you the last time they looked this ineffective, lost at Indianapolis. Um, like I said, Dixon had the crash. Tony Kanaan, they ran him out of fuel, and my understanding is in, in trying to get him restarted on pit lane, they they stripped the the starter gear? I, I've never heard of anything like that before. How about you? No, that was a first for me. That's that's what I heard uh, uh, on radio we were at as well. And uh, you just don't expect that of a first-class organization like, like Chip Ganassi Racing. But, you know, really, a few outliers here or there during the during the couple weeks leading up, uh, basically, the teams didn't show all that much speed. And uh, were actors really once the race got going? I mean, they ran up, ran up in the top after the first half of the race. If I could recall, TK was a couple spots behind him. Just some really uncharacteristic errors out of a Ganassi team to end the day for them. And, and of course, Briscoe had the issues uh, on and just later too. Yeah, I thought Briscoe actually maybe had the best day of, of the four of them. He, as you alluded to, he had the problem very early on. I think it was on the first lap, actually, first or second lap, they had made some, uh, he, he almost lost it on the exit of two, had to pitch to, to replace some flat-spotted tires, got down a lap early. But after that, I mean, he was up on the wheel the rest of the way, race. And unfortunately, he ended up with a, uh, let's see, where did he end up at officially? Around 18th? He, he finished 18th on the race, which I did not think was indicative of how yes. well he drove. Uh, I thought he, I think he probably had the best race of any of the Ganassis. Unfortunately, didn't get the result to show for it. Yeah, well, Ryan's all good, uh, for sure. And, uh, you know, just two, and it couldn't have been timed pretty early, put you in a hole early on, and then very late uh, when you don't have time to recover. Uh, I'm sure it was probably a pretty maddening day. He was probably happy to get cockpit by the time the race was over. Yeah, I would think so. After the the Dixon incident, uh, was it the restart? After that, we had perhaps the most controversial event of the of the race, and that was the the accident turn one involving Ed Carpenter and James Hinchcliffe for sure. And Townsend Bell contributed to that. Give me your take on on what you uh, what you saw there with that incident. Well, you know, to me, hard racing. Uh, I think Hinch will do it later on after seeing some of the replays. Uh, probably at that point, the race should exercise a little more patience. Kind of, kind of stuck his nose somewhere that that uh, helped accentuate the the situation. You know, from from my standpoint, not having to fix the car, or worry, I thought it was they were racing hard. But I understand why there's some tempers afterwards. At at that point in the race, that move for Ed to get taken out, and and of course Hinch, you know, the move killed his day as well, and probably eventually contributed to Townsend's day ending uh, with many laps later from that. I know Townsend talked about the, the second hit being that one. You know, kind of they knocked the toe out on his car, and he was kind of crabbing all the way around anyway. And it was just a matter of time before he hit the wall as well. Yeah, you know, I, I think you've done a little racing yourself, and I've, I've heard the adage is when you go three wide, the last one in is the first one out. Agree here? Yeah, you know, it, and a lot of times discretion is the better part of valor. These open wheels, you know, get away with, with something with fenders is, is a lot different than, than these. You know, there's no 
no margin for errors in the way they're running around there. You know, at, at the end of the day, it's a move that takes you out. It's, it's you know, you kind of got to wonder, I mean, was anything malicious, nothing nothing penalty worthy, but uh, in hindsight, I don't think he would do it again. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think it was hard racing, certainly not penalty worthy. Obviously, the crash took him out, so that's kind of a moot point anyway. I guess my my feeling of it was I, I don't think I, I think it was a very low probability move. I don't think that move had much of a prayer of working. If it's the last lap of the race, maybe you stick your nose in there. Maybe you end up like Sato a couple of years ago because if you get rid of Towns of Bell, the rate the move didn't look that dissimilar to, from what from what Takuma did. It was a very very late attempt that James tried ultimately didn't work if that's the last lap of the race yeah maybe you take the chance there but with 25 laps to go you have a strong car it's an optimistic move that that i just didn't feel ever had a chance of working and and especially when when you dove in so late and townsend had no idea he was there townsend never had a clue that there was a third guy down there and that he would have needed to stay up really in the marbles to to uh, to make that work, and you just can't go three wide around Indianapolis in an Indy car. It's that simple. And James has been around long enough now. What was this? His fourth race, I think. He's been around long enough. He he should know you can't do that. You can't force a three wide situation there. And he the pass was so late. He was never going to get that pass completed before they got into the turn. So. As you say, discretion is sometimes a better part of Valor. I think he would have been wise to to hold back and wait. Uh, I think he tried to pull out and and just couldn't get out fast enough. And and ultimately, it took it took the two contenders out in that move. And as you said, it probably attributed to to Townsend Bell's crash uh, several laps later, as as he was running. What was he running about? Fifth at the time, I think. Fourth, fifth, sixth, somewhere in that ballpark. Yeah, or maybe just a little bit further than that. He might have started a couple of laps before, you know, I think as the problem was manifest. But yeah, he had a strong run going. Uh, but I think that's the main thing with him, just like we talked about. You know, on an oval, when your team has obviously got the, the strong cars, uh, you, you know, coming down, it's going to be an Andretti versus Penske that week at that track. Make the smarter move at that time. You know, wait for another chance. You still got 25 laps. You know, a bit of an edge on folks, so you're going to have another shot at it. But again, then you get into the the heat of the moment. Driver sees a gap. He's going to thinks he can make it stick and makes it go. You know, and then once the wreck, uh, once the move doesn't work and and the wreck happens, we've got all the time in the world to sit here and and uh, and dissect it. You know, whereas he made a, a decision in a, in a in a split second. Certainly, yeah, and it's easy for us to look back in hindsight, you know, four or five days later and say, you know, he shouldn't have done that. But unfortunately, neither one of us are sitting in the cockpit screaming into turn one at 230 miles an hour with a split second to make the decision. So, you know, I I, I don't think this will reflect long term poorly on Hinch. Uh, I think racers will know this was he saw an opening, he went for it, um, and in this case, it didn't work. Ron, you. Uh... Yeah, Ron Hunter raced over fairly well from the Long Beach incident. So I don't blame him around too long. No, I don't think so either. But on the flip side, it was interesting to see Ed Carpenter, I mean, just flat out livid about it 
I mean, I, I shouldn't say it's surprising by any means. I'd be a little bit pissed off, too, if I got taken to the wall when I felt I could have won the race uh, with a somewhat of a bonsai move. But Ed is, has such a reputation for being, you know, docile and calm and collected all the time. And that was about as fired up as I've ever seen Ed. Have you ever seen any, him uh, approach that, that level of emotion? No, that's the first for me. Show you what to in a glass and move to somebody. <laughs> Yeah, so it was nice to see, and it sounds like, uh, based on some some interviews I saw the next day, it sounds like cooler heads prevailed that that they kind of had a chance to talk about it. And while Ed certainly wasn't happy the next day or that evening, I think he understood it was a racing incident that James certainly had no malicious intent. And while it may not have been the the brightest or the most impatient, the most patient move that that he could have made. In this case, it was a racing ad- incident, and I don't expect there to be hard feelings going forward from this, regardless of what was said in the heat of the moment right afterwards. Um, nah, this, this is IndyCar. You know they're always going to hug it out afterwards. Exactly. Or if worse comes to worse, they'll take it to Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was surprised this hug out didn't happen. We, we normally get to it all take place when they start retweeting buddy for a little bit. Exactly. And telling each other something they are, but we missed out on that. All right, so we go a little bit further in the race. What's the next thing that happens? I think the next big thing, then, is the, the Townsend Bell incident. Uh, I don't think there was anything else directly at between those two. So we get to lap 190, 191. Townsend Bell, as, as we alluded to earlier, has a, a what really was a pretty substantial crash there in turn two. A lot of damage. Uh, the car was destroyed, debris all over everywhere. Ultimately, there was some damage done to the safer barrier. Within a lap, Bo Barfield does something that's fairly unprecedented at Indianapolis, and that's throw a red flag, not necessarily because the course is is unusable or there is a driver uh, a, a driver that's been in an incident that is in imminent peril from a safety standpoint, but both through the red flag to give the chance for a green flag finish something that's never been done at Indianapolis. Uh, and, in fact, the only time that I can recall any such uh, occasion as that happening in IndyCar racing period was the 2012 season finale at California. There's been a lot of talk about people who said, is this the right call, is it the wrong call? Almost universally, and, and even a traditionalist like myself falls on this category, I thought it was a great call. I thought the time was perfect for it. You couldn't do it with three or four laps left, and there's no need to do it with 20 laps left. I think it, the, all the, 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 the dice just fell perfectly that at this exact moment in time, it was a perfect time to call a red flag. Ultimately, with the repairs that were required to the safer barrier, it probably needed to be done as well. But I like the call. I think it was the right call. I think that it was well executed. They didn't drive around for four laps under green and then decide to to throw the red flag. It was a decision. Bo stuck with it. He went with it. And I thought it was a great call. John, what do you think? Absolutely. You know, and I got a when the red flag very first threw, and I wasn't aware of the damage to the safer barrier at that time, but I kind of wondered if we were opening Pandora's box. But after seeing the end of the race and, and the further removed we are from it, the more I agree with it. I've, I've got nothing bad to say about the move. Kudos to Bo for uh, uh, having the stones to do it. You know, that's that's a pretty big call from race control for all the reasons that you just touched on. So, uh, you know, I, it ended up 
given us a fantastic finish and the safest track that we could possibly have uh, for that finish. So, uh, like I said, kudos to Bo. Do you think we did open a bit of Pandora's box now? Because because we don't really have anything in writing that says, okay, this is the procedure, and this is when it will be enacted. Do we go back to a little bit of that discretionary call now on for race control? Is this kind of reopening Pandora's box? Yes. <laughs> that's that's the, the easy answer there, for, for sure, because unfortunately it, it reminds me of a discussion I was having with Jared Siegel out of the night before the 500, is that it's the first time this works away from this race. It works to someone's advantage, or they don't get it when they thought it would work to their advantage. We're going to see it ever get out and immediately throw the bus for either throwing the red flag or not throwing the red flag at a future event, and uh, and we'll probably beat the on Twitter so uh, and media. So I think Thor's box is open. Uh, Eric and Bo have just got to be ready to uh, to stick to their guns one way or another on whatever it is they feel and, and uh, roll with it from there because you know we've, we've done it now. You know, if they're if they're not wanting to do it in the future, I'm hoping they'll come out and clarify it fairly soon. As you know, hey, this was just a safety only reason. It had nothing to do with the green flag, whatever. If that's what they're thinking, because like I said, if not, people are people are going to wonder every time there's a flag or not when it's when it's getting close. You know, my biggest concern as we were sitting there, and the red flag went on for. I don't know if I saw an official time, but I would guess in the 12 to 14 minute range, somewhere in that ballpark. It wasn't excessive, but it wasn't necessarily pit stop length either. My greatest concern was whether we would get all of the remaining engines restarted. These engines had been run for 475 miles, almost full throttle the whole time. Very few cautions to that point. You know, these engines don't always restart right away when you when you shut them off when they're hot and you try to restart them. They don't always start again. What if somebody in the top five doesn't have an engine refire? That would have been a nightmare situation. Yeah, I honestly, don't even know. I mean, how long do you give them? You know, what so what the procedure for that? I don't think there is one written. So, you know, how do you see? They're saying, nope, that's tough for them. We need to go. The rules during that red flag were, were pretty strict. They were only allowed two, or maybe only one. Maybe I, I believe they, they allowed two crew members near the car. One was to plug in a battery and give the driver a, a drink bottle during the red flag, and the other one was there to actually start the car. So there was no work allowed to be done, and I believe I heard that no crew member was allowed to actually even push the car away from the, the pit lane, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. Um, which I guess would be a good safety thing. You don't necessarily want a guy standing right between the cars as they're trying to take off. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if one of these engines doesn't refire, now you've really opened a, a, a can of worms there that, you know, you're you're opening your – the race control is opening themselves to all sorts of headaches if, for whatever reason, those that engine doesn't refire. I guess in this case, Absolutely. They, uh, I mean, let's let's go to the go ahead. Go to the, the biggest what if that you could of of all of them. if Ryan Hunter's engine doesn't fire. Yeah. The lead in the race normal circumstance. 
under caution, if it's not red flagged, you know, what if his engine are do then? You know, can you <laughs> you want to talk about Pandora's box? That's the biggest one. You yeah, that would have been a uh, a disastrous outcome uh, for race control. Quite honestly, trying to to explain that one away, and thankfully they didn't have to to deal with that. But you know, as you said, that could have could have been a situation that could have had to have been addressed. But I guess if if ifs and buts were candies and nuts, we'd all be have a merry Christmas, right? <laughs> so we come back from the red flag and we have six laps of incredible racing and and you know john and i were talking about this before the podcast if you look at the lap by lap summary the the race chart that shows the actual position of each car in the on each lap and, and you can find that on the more front wing event summary uh with the race lap chart if you look at that lap chart over the last six laps this looks like a very boring race because if you again it, when we come out of the red flag, Ryan Hunter Ray is officially the leader on every lap except for lap 196. Uh, Elio is officially second place uh, again except for on lap 196. Marco Andretti is officially in third place the entire balance of the race. Carlos Munoz is officially in fourth place the entire time. Juan Pablo Montoya is officially in fifth place the entire time. Kurt Busch is officially in sixth place. And Sebastian Bourdais is officially in seventh place. So among those top seven drivers in the last six laps of the race, there was officially one pass for position. This is what they mean when they say the numbers don't tell the story. Because these last six laps were some of the great final laps of an Indianapolis 500. Where do you start here, John? Well, that's amazing. I, I actually, it was that uh, to, to that level that far back because this was, well, I was going to say edge of your seat, but I would have had to have been sitting down to be on the edge of my seat. This was <laughs> standing up, jumping, shouting. You know, the electricity there was, was just amazing throughout the crowd. Everybody could tell they were witnessing something great. Uh, Elio and, and Ryan Hunter uh, just defending their guts out, uh, going down the inside, down the front stretch and the back stretch. Uh, Marco made a couple of runs, strong runs, to try to get up there with some, some really ballsy moves to try to pass for position, to try to get up into second place, kind of got his nose times. Ryan's pass going into three, faking one without Elio to get him to move, and then knowing that he couldn't come back, shooting down, kicking up dirt, uh, from the inside of the track, they were almost in grass. We almost real pass in the grass, and then holding him off. It was just so exciting, such good running skill exhibited by those three drivers. You couldn't ask for anything more to end the Indy 500, I don't think. You know, I go back a few years, I think, longer than you do, and you know, I've got a few years of age on you, and I can I can still remember I was 11 years old at the 1992 500. And I can remember those last eight laps with, with Al Jr. And, and Goodyear. And I remember not being able to stand still. I remember standing there and my legs shaking from, from what was going to happen. Nobody knew, you know, was this the lap Goodyear was going to catch him? Was, was Al going to be able to hold him off? And I remember the white flag coming out and you still had absolutely no idea how that race was going to finish. And I think really this was the first time I've had that feeling since then, maybe 2006 to an extent. 
but this was the first time that every time they came by, you really had no clue how they were going to come by again. And, you know, as, as lap 197 turned to 198 and that turned to 199, it, it, and, they stayed so close together, you really thought at any moment that they were going to be able to get past each other. And, and as I think back on it, it's amazing to me this lap summary looks like this because I know Elio led, you know, probably half of the race distance between there. And it just happens that, that Ryan was able to nudge past into the lead right before the start finish line and, and kind of get credit for for leading each of these laps. But I would bet if you took the cumulative distance, they were probably pretty even on, on which one led, you know, how much of those, those last six laps, as you said, that pass into turn three, it was very similar to the move that, that Marco Andretti tried. Uh, I'm sorry, that uh, Sam Hornish tried on Marco at the end of the 2006 race when Marco slammed the door and he couldn't pull it off. In this case, Ryan hunter just wasn't going to be denied. As you said, it was a brilliant where he kind of set Elio up, juked him to the outside, and then dove back in. How he didn't drive through the grass, I will never know. I think we can, we're going to look back on that pass 10 years from now, and it will be held up right next to the Alex Zanardi pass at Laguna Seca at the finale of 1996 kart season. That It'll, it'll be that well-remembered from from just the the magnitude of the situation, the the bravery it took to pull off that pass, and the determination Hunter Ray had that he just simply was not going to be denied. I think we're going to look back on that pass as one of the one of the iconic memories of the Indianapolis 500 very soon. I think that's going to be one that that we all remember for a very very long time. And then let, I mean, and let's not discount either the pass that actually won the race. Uh, an outside pass going into turn one, taking the white flag. And that's not an easy pass to pull off either. That that one took some bravery as well. And, and of course, you start thinking outside passes in turn one. You go back to 1991 with the Mears and Michael Andretti race. Uh, I mean, this was just a last six laps that was filled with excitement for however long it took to run six laps. Every minute of that was just absolutely hold your breath. Who is going to bring this home? And I, I, th- I think it's going to truly be one of the great finishes in 500 history. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And and how cool for Ryan Hunter Ray to know that uh, you know you went from the the apprehension red flag, not knowing how everything's going to end up, wondering if 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 he had the race in hand to pulling off one of the best passes that we've ever seen there at Speedway to claim your first in victory. Yeah. Uh, so Hunter Ray goes on to win the race, you know, great to see, it's great to see the pride that he has in bringing a victory back for, for the United States. And, and I know that's something that Ryan really takes a lot of pride in. You, you, you look at Ryan and you just kind of see this all American guy that, that really looks like, uh, he could be a businessman, uh, just just a, a true great ambassador, not only for IndyCar, but particularly for for the IndyCar, the United States contingent, and and that, that's something that he's so proud of, and that he was so excited to to raise the stars and stripes when he when he was there before he kissed the brick. That was a, a great moment of pride for him. On the other side of his elation, uh, teammate Marco Andretti 
wasn't necessarily quite as uh, happy for his teammate as one might have maybe had hoped that he would have for for his teammate. He made some comments post race that that certainly uh, gave the indication that he wasn't necessarily pleased with how Ryan Hunter Ray raced him at the at the end of the race. And I know there was at least one occasion. There's a great in, in car camera shot of Marco going into turn three where it looked like he had the line, and, and Ryan Hunter Ray certainly chopped him down. I think maybe that was the lap before the great pass we had just spoken of. But but Marco John Marco certainly wasn't happy post race with with his teammate and, and, and didn't share the elation that the rest of the team did. Did he? Now that was the. Uh the most non-congratulatory congratulations I think I've ever seen. I can, under, I can understand Marco's feelings. Though. You know, that's got to be a – there's such a weird dynamic there, or a tough dynamic there with Andretti. You've got, uh, uh, you know, Michael Andretti, uh, his, his team's just won, but his son's just lost another opportunity at Speedway. Of course, the Andretti history here. Uh, Marco was long, uh, all month, had a great car that day, had a couple of moves, and – and like you said, uh, he, he did get chopped there once. Uh, and, and at that point in the race, uh, hey, if, if you're if you're Ryan Hunter Ray, you're gonna you're gonna force him to call it on you. And, and he did that. They didn't. Uh, so it worked out for him. But uh, you can see where Marco's coming from. But he he meant just barely toe the company line. Uh, if you read the read the quote. But, but hearing it live, it was uh, uh, it was definitely a little bar. Yeah, and you you look at Marco's Marco's history at the event, and, and you you wonder if the Andretti curse is starting to wear on him a little bit because he's had, you know, by just looking at the numbers, he's had a successful career here. You know, he he burst on the scene with a runner up in 2006. I think he's had two third place finishes now and, and a couple fourths, maybe. I I want to say maybe out of his what was it? Is this his eighth race, I think, or maybe his ninth? Uh, I, I think he's had something like four to six top five finishes. So you have to think he's starting to get extremely frustrated. Am I ever going to win this race? Am I ever going to return the Andretti name to victory lane here? And and I think he thought, and a lot of people thought, maybe this was his best chance. I don't think I personally I don't think he had the car to win at the end. I just don't think he had the speed to match the the other two yellow cars there. Uh, so I can understand his frustration. I don't think the block necessarily prevented him from winning the race because I I just don't think he had the car to get there. But yeah, certainly it's it's an emotional time. You know, he's just denied another chance at victory when when he was a, a favorite going in and yeah, it, it it's a very difficult thing for for probably for any of us to understand sure we all love the indianapolis 500 but we don't live it and we certainly don't live it with the andretti name attached to us and the pressure that that brings so it's understandable why he was why he would be upset afterwards and and i think that that a lot of people maybe see a little bit of uh there are a lot of people for sure that that probably thought he was a little bit of a uh Maybe a little bit of a prima donna that he couldn't congratulate his teammate wholeheartedly. But I think there are a lot of people that maybe thought it refreshing that he didn't come out and just say, oh, it's a great win for the team. We had a great points day. You know, I'm so happy for my good friend Ryan that he was able to get his first win because I wouldn't have felt that way. I would have been upset. So it's a bit refreshing to actually see him show that emotion and say, you know what? Yeah, you're right. I am mad. Yeah. Get happy for Ryan. He's a good guy. Good friend. Yeah. I wanted to win it myself. 
So, quite honestly, I don't have a problem. Absolutely. With that. No, not at all. You know, I like seeing passion in our drivers. And that's one thing you can't say that, uh, and now Marco may not convey it in uh, interviews that he gives, uh, well, definitely in the interviews, but uh, if you listen to Marco's radio and if you see him whenever he first gets out of the car from a race, no doubt that, that he has got a burning passion to win and wants to get kind of victory lane, especially at Indy. And, and you know, I, I think that's good to see. That's refreshing. I, I like to hear drivers speak their mind, you know, especially from our standpoint on, on, a, on a media side. You know, I, I want to hear what they really think, not what they think we want to hear them say. And uh, so, you know, I, I appreciate that out of him. Anything else from the race itself that uh, that we haven't covered that you think we need to, to hit on before we move on here for a little bit? No, I think we've, we've uh, ran it down pretty good. All right. Let's go then to the victory banquet the following night. Ryan Hunter Ray took home a, a, a two point four, almost two and a half, just short of two and a half million dollars for his first place uh, for his victory. Uh, that being uh, out of a total, out of a total purse of fourteen some million, four, I forget the exact number, fourteen, uh, fourteen and a half million somewhere in that ballpark. Incredible payday for him, but what I think a lot of people maybe are talking about more out of the victory banquet was the Rookie of the Year battle, which ultimately went to NASCAR champion Kurt Busch. You know, John, I, I, I was fortunate enough to have a vote for Rookie of the Year this year. My vote, my first place vote this year went to Sage Karam, and I know a lot of other folks that also voted for him. Dave first mentioned that he had voted for him. You know, Kurt Cavan made a good case for 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 uh, Sage's Rookie of the Year. Other people are suggesting that Co-Rookie of the Years would have been appropriate here as well, which we'd have to go back, I believe, 2002 was the last year we had Co-Rookie of the Years. But, you know, all in all, Sage Karam drove an incredible race this year, and I personally thought he did more with less. It's hard to say any team that's even tangentially uh, associated with, with Chip Ganassi Racing as a lesser team. But you consider that, that Kurt Busch, A, he's got oodles of experience, maybe not in IndyCar, but certainly as a race driver, he's got just tons of experience. And he had the, he, he was on the winning team. He was with Andretti. He had great teammates in the champion Ryan Hunter Ray, Marco Andretti, and, and Hinchcliffe, Viso, Carlos Munoz, who, by the way, we shouldn't necessarily forget Carlos Munoz backed up his runner-up effort last year with another strong fourth-place effort this year that kind of got largely overlooked. But let's uh, let's not forget Carlos and his great run. Uh, but Bush, you know, he, he had a lot more resources available. And not to take anything away from Kurt by any means, because he drove an incredible race to bring it home sixth in his first IndyCar f- race. I personally felt that Sage showed me more as a rookie. And let's not forget, Sage didn't destroy a car during the month either. John? Yeah. Those, um, personally, I'm glad that it didn't go to here. I, I like to see a, a winner uh, on, on any type of award versus a, versus a co. If, if I had had a vote, which I don't, I would have voted. I think it is his run through the field, uh, especially as a rookie, and as you said, not, not tearing up any equipment or anybody else, not causing any tore up anybody else's equipment, is very impressive, but I can't argue too much against uh, just because of how different are from what he 
and yes, he has a lot of experience, but it's in a completely different type of one thing that Sage, though, was just seeing the impact that uh, A.J. Allmendinger had last year, uh, being able to keep laps, and without some misfortune, you know, probably would have had a chance to at least be in the hunt for the win himself. So to me, that colored colored my, my look at this a little bit against Kurt, but I think it was one of those where you couldn't really get either way, but I personally would have voted for and, and, you know, speaking of Kurt, I think a lot of us that – a, don't follow NASCAR closely and certainly aren't involved in it, either from a from a team perspective or a media perspective. There is this uh, a reputation and this persona that Kurt Busch has of being this extreme hothead, you know, not good with the media, not necessarily good with fans. The very well-publicized uh, run-in that he had with Dr. Punch a couple years ago uh, that ultimately led to his dismissal from, from Penske Motorsports on the NASCAR side, uh, and there's there's this certain aura of, of Kurt Busch that he is just kind of a jerk, to be quite honest. I saw none of that this year, and, and maybe maybe in the inner team workings of Andretti, some of that existed, but for, no, I haven't seen any indication that's the case. Everyone that I've spoken with and heard from that had interaction with Kurt during the month talked about, A, how pleasant he was to be around, how professional he was, and how much he genuinely enjoyed the IndyCar and the Indianapolis 500 experience. I think Kurt made a lot of fans this month. Don't you agree? Yeah, I think so. And I know I know, is trying to uh, remake. She did a lot of damage but over the past few years and to, to try to show a different side of himself. Crazy amount of respect for what he did. And completed 900 of the 1,100 miles, and the other 200 weren't his fault. He had an engine failure on the NASCAR side there. And he came over here, said the right things, did the right things, and seemed to be the consummate pro for the Andretti folks there. So, And it was good for IndyCar to get the added exposure of, of having a, a, a really high-level NASCAR guy over here. Uh, so all in all, I think it was all positive. I agree, and, and as you said, it's great not only to have a NASCAR driver here, but a high level. I mean, let, let's be honest. If if this is, you know, David Rudiman or, or Regan Smith or someone of that level, you're not going to get the attention that you get with the, uh, the Kurt Busch. Uh, you know, there are few people fans are as passionate about as Kurt Busch. Maybe his brother Kyle might be the one exception. Uh, but when it comes to emotion uh, that that drivers from NASCAR illicit, I, I think you got to consider the Bush brothers right up there. You either love them or you hate them. And I don't know there's a whole lot of, of folks that are in between. So there were a lot of NASCAR people that tuned into the Indianapolis 500 because they were excited to see Kurt Busch succeed or they were excited to watch him fall on his face. I don't, I, I don't think anyone really watched it just wholly out of curiosity and thought, oh, okay, well, he got a 10th place finish. Good for him. I think they really wanted one or the other, and that's that is wonderful. And the type of fan base that that IndyCar really needs to build upon, and that they really need to to bring into the fold. So hopefully, you know, those people that that watch for Kurt Busch to either succeed or fall on his face, hopefully they liked what they saw of this event, and they'll think, hey, you know what, I'm going to watch the next race, next race in Detroit. 
Eh, let's be honest. That might not be one that helps them for for life. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> but but maybe they'll uh, maybe they'll stay interested enough to tune into Texas in a few weeks, or they'll come back at Pocono uh, here on July Fourth weekend, or or Iowa, or, or or Milwaukee, or Toronto, or or some of the other great events that IndyCar has coming up. And maybe that's I mean that's the benefit that you get from having a driver of of Kurt Busch's ilk running the double and that i think that's why indycar and in fact i'm quite certain that's why indycar has for so many years done what they needed to do to get a nascar driver here uh, not because they necessarily need the the one-time bump to get the indianapolis 500 ratings up because it exposes indycar races and puts it right in the face of a whole new set of race fans and I don't think that IndyCar could buy that that value that Kurt Busch brought to them this weekend. No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it, it's, like I said, it's just a, a positive from all sides. I mean, let's let's face it, we're talking about a Sprint Cup champion. It's a, it's a few years removed now, but this is a NASCAR champion that that came over and uh, and ran uh, the. So it, it couldn't do anything but good. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. Uh, so I think with that, that pretty much puts a bow on, on the Indianapolis 500 and, and the, our coverage for that. Let's just quickly uh, turn our attention to this coming week because the, the 24, 25 drivers from the Verizon IndyCar Series get right back on the saddle again. They're running two this weekend in Detroit. We have full doubleheader this weekend. So Saturday and Sunday both. Days we're running full events. Green flag will drop on both of those at 3:50 Eastern time. Race broadcast on ABC again for the what is this, John? Is this our fourth week in a row on on ABC? Yeah, I think so. So again, we yeah, we, yeah four four in a row. Yeah, so we keep that momentum going. So hopefully we can put on a good show here. It's an ABC event, so there's no qualifying coverage this weekend. The, the, the times for those, though, are uh, very early on Saturday morning, actually. They'll run the Firestone Fast 6 uh, from 8.35 to 9.35 on Saturday morning. Uh, and then qualifying for race two will be Sunday morning from 10 to 10.30. Practice kicks off Friday, though, at 11.20 a.m. So uh, a nice, good early start for, for the IndyCar Series to get back on track uh, in Detroit. Of course, all of the information you need to follow along this weekend is up on morefrontwing.com. You can find our event summary, as always. Find the latest one at morefrontwing.com slash event summary. A couple other things to point out here. We, we discussed quickly that there are the two two races in Detroit. The tweet-up for this weekend, the Indy the fans tweet-up is putting on another event this weekend. This weekend's tweet-up will actually be on Friday afternoon, so it's on practice day at 3.45. It's at the on, on the steps of the Media Center, which, if you have a track map available, it, it, it's adjacent to Turn 8, kind of where the where the cars turn in off of the back straight there. Uh, it's kind of in that, 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 that complex back there that comes off of the back straight. 3.45 on, on Friday afternoon is that event. And I believe Friday afternoon, again, is free admission uh, at this event. So hopefully we'll have a good turnout for the tweet-up there. Hopefully the the, uh, the race itself will have a, a good turnout. It's good to see that Chevrolet has re-upped their sponsorship th- for this event, which I believe now goes through 2016. 
so that that's always good to to have a, a sponsor re-up on those, which means Chevrolet must be planning to stick around for the next couple of years as well, which is the really good news. What else do we need to cover here? That's pretty much, I think, all I've got. A couple news and notes out of the IndyCar world. Uh, IndyCar today announced, and in, in, very oddly, in two separate press releases, a, a series of, of penalties on the engine manufacturer side. Honda, it said in the first release that came out this afternoon, was was docked 50 points uh, for for engine changes, and I, I don't have the release in front of me here, so forgive me, but I believe those were on the I believe Sato got one, uh, Ray Hall got one, and, and I, I, I'm I'm drawing a blank on who the other ones were in that morning release, and then several hours later, IndyCar put out another release saying that additional penalties had been incurred. This time on Chevrolet got a 10 point penalty for a change on the number 20 entry, which of course is the Ed Carpenter Mike Conway car. Also, Marco Andretti had a, an entrant initiated change costing Honda an additional 10 points. In fact, let me rephrase it. I don't know that it said entry initiated. What is interesting, though, is in the the first release that came out in the afternoon, they did specify that, that Honda had previously received, I believe it was four additional penalties of, of 10 points each for, that were entry initiated. Now, one of those entrants... There, there were four of them. One was Jacques Villeneuve, one was Martin Plowman, one was another of the Indy one-offs, and, and I'm blanking on what it was, but the four, uh, Alex Tagliani, excuse me. The fourth one of that was Oriel Serbia. Now, the why that's interesting is because earlier in the year, IndyCar had announced that the 10-spot grid penalty had been vacated this year and that that was no longer the case. However, there is verbiage in that document that says if an engine change is unapproved and entry initiated, that entry would start at the rear of the field at the next event. Now, when I pressed IndyCar representative uh, Mike Kitchell about this, he seemed very surprised to see that verbiage in in that document. So there's some confusion within IndyCar whether that truly is the case. So it will be interesting to see when Oriole Servia's next races, which I don't know what that is off the top of my head. It'll be interesting to see if he will indeed start at the rear of the field. I think that covers all the news and notes from this week. John, you got anything that I've that I've passed up on or forgotten about? You know, I'd like to play a, a good Steph impersonation here and call you on something, but I think you did a good job. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Hopefully, uh, hopefully we've held down the fort for Steph and, uh, as I said, Steph will be on site this weekend, so be sure to check into Twitter throughout the weekend. She'll be providing her wonderful coverage as she always does. You know, find us on Twitter, find us on Facebook, find us on Instagram, find us at morefrontwing.com. Steph will be providing all the updates you need to, uh, to keep abreast. And I would assume Steph will also be doing another fan, uh, a stand tour as she did at the Grand Prix of Indianapolis several weeks ago, which proved to be extremely popular. So I would assume she is planning to do that, and I would guess that will probably be Friday. Keep an eye out for that, especially if you're going to the races this weekend and have a general admission ticket and are looking for for uh, for information on on where the good seats are. With that, as John, I believe, uh, says we have no more news to cover. John, thanks again for joining us. Always great having you on the show. Absolutely. Glad to be here. All right. Well, we'll wrap it up there. We'll be back next weekend to 
to put a bow on the Chevrolet duels in Detroit, and we'll continue looking forward through the rest of the season of the Verizon IndyCar Series. And until then, when you need IndyCar news and views, get a grip with more front wing.